Hello and welcome to this two-part episode of The Inspired Attorney, hosted by me, Sharon B. Today we're speaking with Ricky Patel, who shares with us how he got into class actions and how him and his partner started their firm in 2009 as a result of the hiring freeze that was caused by the economic downturn. He also shares with us insights from how he handled a high-profile case, the BP oil case, as a young attorney. He gives tips and tricks for those of us who are starting a practice and also shares how his firm brings in the human factor. Hi, Ricky. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Inspired Attorney. Thank you. Thank you for the quarantine edition. <laughs> yeah. So can you uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. I'm Ricky Patel. I'm an attorney that has been practicing, ooh, I think, since 2009. So yeah, over 11 years now. And what area do you practice in? Uh, we started practicing class action litigation. Uh, we do a lot of first party litigation for property uh, casualty damages from insurance companies. And uh, we'll occasionally still get involved in class actions like the, the NFL class action. And uh, unique cases would include uh, the Baylor rape cases. So I represented all of the rape victims, the women that were affected to change the, the regulations of Title IX during that. Um, I've represented a few uh, criminal cases for athletes uh, when they were wrongfully convicted of crimes that did not occur, and we've, we've tried those. So we'll occasionally delve into other areas, but class action was the, the bread and butter. Yeah. So in terms of your legal career, what is one of your favorite things about what you do? Um, challenging. I, I, I really still enjoy challenging cases. Uh, the type of case that you go to sleep thinking about um, and you wake up with that aha moment. I, I still really, really enjoy those. Um, I like getting involved in cases. Obviously, every case that we do at our firm is something that we really believe in. It's not monetarily based. Um, an example of that was after Hurricane Maria went through Puerto Rico, uh, we ended up representing the island, the government, the municipalities, because the insurance companies denied all the cases. And when I speak about the complexity of it, typically the way that attorneys are trained will look at law and will keep researching, you keep scraping away until you can find something. But there are occasions where the law does not favor you. It's just not available. And in Puerto Rico, we had um, laws that were archaic that did not apply. And so I wrote the laws and it was the first time I did that with no experience, no lobbying, no we literally sat down and we wrote bad faith statutory fee uh, bill in Puerto Rico. And it was the first time that unanimously both sides of the parties in Congress and Senate voted in favor of it and had it passed. So it was uh, very, very interesting and unique to uh, get to the end of the road and say, OK, there's nothing else here that the law can do and then go ahead and create it. And uh, we had these we have these great shirts at the firm that were made saying uh, if the people are not willing to do the right thing. We'll force them with the law. And if there are no laws to help the people, we will create them. And it's just something that we're very proud of because, uh, you know, usually when you hit that wall, you feel like it's over. And this was the beginning of it. So it's been interesting to now educate uh, the judges on the laws that were created and then go back and, and offer these rights to people. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was very, very exciting. 
So you have your own firm. Can you um, talk a little about, bit about why you decided to create your own firm and um, some of the things that you experienced along the way and like challenges and how you responded to them? Sure. That's a great question. Um, I started the law firm accidentally. It wasn't uh, ever my goal to start a law firm. I was the first one to go to college in my family. And my family were refugees. So coming to the United States, uh, my, my family moved from Africa to England. Then we moved from England to the United States. And uh, just trying to figure out the system was very complicated. You know, just how do I go to college? Where do I get loans from? How do I pay for food? All that good stuff. And I found this passion in undergrad for human rights law. And so I just became a human rights junkie following anything I could on genocide prevention and uh, international crisis which led me to go into St. Thomas to study human rights law. I, I, I had this dream of uh, going out there, fighting the good fight. And uh, my second year of law school, I realized that this really doesn't exist um, besides George Clooney's wife. And I don't even know who else really uh, is renowned in human rights. It, it seemed like this passion I had was just that, just a passion. So I left that to go into immigration to help out refugees and asylum seekers. And so I decided once I graduate from law school, I'm going to go practice immigration law. The issue was I graduated in 2009. So the economy had completely collapsed and no one was hiring any attorneys. They were firing uh, attorneys. And so at that time, myself and my best friend, Wes Farrell, decided we can sit around here and complain about what's going on or we can start our own law firm. And so we started our practice. And when I tell you it was enough for the strongest person to actually give up. Uh, we went through that. I remember we were making around $600 a month, uh, split two ways. Um, and the cases we were taking, I remember there were times where Wes would call me up and say, there's a prostitution case. She's going to pay $200 for me to defend her. And I have to go into a neighborhood that I may not be able to get out of. And it was one of those things where we didn't question it twice. Like, okay, we, we need, we need this money. So, uh, we we were involved in, in any case that came through. The, the one that we still really enjoy discussing to this day was, and these are all great battle stories, but there was one where this lady had, she was an older lady. She must've been in her seventies and she had a Toyota that she purchased and the, uh, the dealership had towed the vehicle. And even when she tried to pay, make like the payment, they tried to like upcharge her. And I think we had charged her like $500. And we must have put a solid 75 to 100 hours into this case. And we didn't even take the whole fee up front. We took like $250 up front. And I remember winning it. And uh, we felt so bad even taking the other 250 even though we desperately needed it. And just meeting this old lady who it felt that was like out of all of the like the, the verdicts and settlements and everything we've had. Those are the stories where you remember and felt good. You really felt good about it. And so... We struggled. There's no, there's no other definition to it. We really struggled. Um, I remember looking out trust accounts in the morning and night to make sure that payment wasn't taken out that we couldn't afford to capture. And um, we didn't have anyone to look out for. And uh, we didn't have anyone say, hey, listen, I know you guys are starting off less in new cases. Let us guide you. Let us tell you what not to do. Let us tell you um, you know, where you can seek help from X, Y, and Z. That didn't exist. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I like doing things like this. I like uh, doing lectures and speaking to students. There's not a time 
where a student at St. Thomas has reached out and I, and I don't drop whatever else is going on because I remember that feeling. It's, it's a, a very sad and lonely feeling thinking, am I doing the right thing? And like, have, have I gone down the wrong route? And, um, and that was the beginning. That was the very difficult part. And, and I think a lot of people don't talk about that or if they're going through it right now, they feel that they're alone. They're looking at law firms that are 50 years old and saying, why am I not doing this? And they're forgetting you're in your late 20s, early 30s. You're just starting your career. Um, don't put this added pressure on you. I remember looking at uh, these giants and thinking we're never going to get there. And the thing is, even when you get there, you're still looking in other directions. So starting a law firm is difficult, but it's very, very rewarding. Um, and you feel like you have, um, you're, you're, you're vesting your time in something that belongs to you. Yeah. So I think a lot of the time people don't ask for help, which is exactly what you're doing in this instance, you're offering your help to people who need it. What did you do in that moment? Did you ask for help? Did you seek certain materials? What helped you transition from $500 or $600 a month to where you are now? I am a firm believer, and there's a lot of people I can disagree with this. I'm a firm believer that you can work as hard as you want. You can be as smart as you want, but occasionally things just have to fit in. And you can call it grace. You can call it luck. You can call it fortune, whatever it is. You've got to have a, a mesh of those. I believe that every person is offered an opportunity at least once in their life, and they still may not realize if they had missed that opportunity. Um, we were very fortunate um, in terms of in 2010, so a year after we had been grinding away, and my partner would, what <laughs> one more story that that I really have to really because he'll he'll get chuckled out of this was one time I called him up and told him that he had to handle a adoption case for a Korean family, um, and it was just one of those things. Not no one had a clue how to do this, and it was always a okay, all right, we'll figure it out. And um, from going from those types of cases to we landed the largest class action in U.S. history. So I remember when uh, we were watching TV and there was the BP oil spill and it was 86 days of oil spilling everywhere. People thought the world was going to end. And what myself and my partner did at that time, we still do that to this day, is we always look at these times and say, when people are afraid, when they're looking, when they're seeking an answer, when is this going to end? How is this going to end? We're usually looking at this and saying, what can we do differently? How do we do things so that we can make things better from, from the pain and so forth going forward? And we realized that tourism was being absolutely demolished. The environment was being demolished. And when I was mentioning the grace, the luck, the fortune part of it, um, we realized in hospitality, over 50% of all the hotels in the United States are owned by Indians with the same last name as me. Okay. Now, I was unfortunate not to be in that lucky club, but uh, at the age of 27, I was able to reach out to a few of them and ask them to trust us that we would work harder than anyone else. And um, uh, the, the way the story goes is we told the hospitality, there, there were five hotel owners, and we told them that, look, if you trust us, we'll, we'll try and get you $10,000 each. And that number came from a, hopefully we can get this. And I remember they tried to negotiate us down because we were kids. I mean, if you look at 26 and 27 year olds, if you look at, the, there's video footage of the news with myself on it. And I'm just like, you look like a baby. How did this happen? Right. Um, 
And we convinced five of them to give us 33% uh, and a third and uh, that we were just going to outwork everyone. That was the one thing. There were no other law firms that had handled a case like this. Um, and so we, for the first time, we had a neutral playground. We didn't have to worry about the 100-year-old firms where they said, oh, we've done a million of these cases. There was one case ever with Exxon Valdez, and it went south, right? And so we convinced them, and I remember we took shifts sleeping. So my partner would stay up at nighttime. I would stay up during the day, and we would just make sure to work around the clock, trying to figure out how to work this out. And I remember we had reviewed more financial documents than any lawyer ever should. And we submitted them. And I remember about eight days, seven or eight days later, um, Wes called me up and it must have been 6 a.m. This was my sleeping time. Okay, So we knew not to disrupt the other person during sleeping time. And he called me up and said, did you check the trust account? At which point I freaked out based on what I told you before. Okay, we paid our phone bill. We paid this. We paid that. And so I was like, yes, but let me check again. And so he doesn't say anything. I go check it. And I remember the night before I had like, maybe a thousand dollars in there. And we, we kept like that, that was our buffer. Okay. I want you to think about that. And I checked it and there was, I think a little over half a million dollars in the account that we weren't, we weren't like excited. That was, we had no idea where it came from. We were freaking out. I thought, Oh my God, someone put the wrong money in the wrong account. And eventually we traced it back. The bank told us that it was from BP. We called up BP and they were just like, look, we're not paying you any more for this person right now until you give us more information. And so now we're realizing it was a partial payment for one hotel owner. And um, so typically in the legal field, what happens is as you're doing business, you get a settlement check, you kind of send an email and mail the checkout. Well, for us, this was the biggest thing we had experienced. And we thought it was the biggest thing that we would ever experience in our whole life. And um we told the client, hey, we're going to fly up there and give you your check. Let's take you out to dinner. And the client um, thought that they were going to get 6000 bucks or something from the 10000 They had no idea what it was. And so they invited 20 of their friends out to make sure they got their bank for their buck from whatever our fee would be. And uh, when we gave them the check, it was like they saw the, like the lottery check coming, you know? And I remember the guy, it was in Louisiana, and he went around showing all of his friends the checks. And we left thinking, okay, if we never make more than this, I think it was like 150-ish that we had made our firm. If we never make any more than this, we now have money to do a little bit of marketing. We have a little bit of money to you know, build up to this. And the other four people received payments very similar to it that same week. And they told their friends and they told their friends and that horror story, not horror story, but that difficult time of struggling, that very, very difficult time of struggling uh, turned into us representing 4,000 hotels around the Gulf Coast. And we became the biggest in the world for this. We changed the methodologies. We were under 30 years old at the table with with the, the big guys, the older guys, the guys that have the firms that are 89 years old. And uh, here we are. And being a minority also is a very, it's, it's a huge disadvantage. Um, because everyone looks the same. It's the same older white guy, white hair with the pinstripe suits. And then you've got myself who was like 29 years old and like with crazy pocket squares and like, you know, uh, dressed in, in a way that they weren't used to. And, and we built that. And we decided that when we built that, we, we didn't spend much money at all. I remember, um, even after the first year, uh, we shared a car. Uh, we rented our apartments. Our offices were very, very simple. And we 
hired the best lawyers we could. We hired the best lawyers, the best CPAs, the best accountants, and we stockpiled uh, a tremendous amount of cash because we heard nightmare stories of people blowing the money, right? You always hear about these stories of, oh, that guy made this money and he bought you know, X, Y, and Z and lost it. And, and so we were so precautious that we swung the other way and it helped us out because in 2014, the Supreme Court froze the whole case up, which required us to spend hundreds of thousands every month paying employees without any money coming in. But because we had stockpiled, it helped us out. And we decided every case we do going forward must be a case where we are doing good. And that's what also led me to philanthropy. We, we can't just make this money. We've got to give it back. We've got to find ways. But if you look at the story, we could have given up very easily and no one would have blamed us. It was a very difficult time. We barely had enough money to pay for cell phone bills and food, let alone our student loans. I had $150,000 in student loans, um, which is difficult because it's almost all interest. I didn't have credit at the time. And so I had high interest rates. Um, all of these things are things that people experience and they feel like they're alone in this. And it's because they almost have this feeling of, the world is looking at me as a lawyer. I passed the bar exam. All of these people who are looking up at me, I can't let them feel that Superman is falling. And what they're not realizing is it's just the next step. It's just, you've got to continue on. No one's ever going to look at you as a failure for saying, hey, I just don't have the money for this this month. I, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. It's perfectly fine. It's just, as long as you don't give up, you know, there are times where it's okay to change direction, but giving up, is something that I think people would regret later on, you know? So, yeah, I know that was a long-winded answer to, to your question, so, yeah. No, I think it was incredible because you also touched on, you know, the question that I asked and also that, you know, when you come out of law school, you have these expectations that, you know, you're just going to rock it off. And mm -hmm. there is that moment of humility where you have to realize that it's just the next step. And right. you need to go through those growing pains. Sure, sure, you do. And and if you go through it, you'll look back and say, wow, that was amazing. And honestly, that was, in my legal career, that was top five best moments ever because it was myself and it was my partner and a couple attorneys. And we would stay up till 2, 3 a.m. and just discussing and just knowing that it was like every piece mattered, right? Um, my law firm right now has done very well. It's a very successful firm, but there's managers and CEOs and CFOs and people everywhere. So if I'm not involved in the process, it will be fine. And there was something fun about the initial grind of building this thing up from the ground, you know, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people in the middle of it, um, have difficulty seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, you know? Uh, but sometimes the tunnel, it's funny. It's, it's, it's fun just getting through that, you know? Did you have any sort of business experience before, like through undergrad, even though you did, you know, the human rights stuff, but did you have any sort of business acumen before you started your firm? I read like a madman. So I try to go through two books every month. I read on every subject that I don't understand. I've read, I don't even know how many books on finance structuring, um, and that involves how to make sure that what well, the biggest lessons that I learned were don't, don't try and impress your wealthy friends, create a business that's meant for making a profit. Otherwise it's a hobby. 
And the reason why this imp- information was so important to me was we had the opportunity to pick up the marble floor offices with the, you know, two secretaries in the front and all the stuff. And we refused it. And it was one of those things that our friends that were attorneys who had been practicing for 10 years would always come by and say, why are you guys still answering your own phone? It's not professional, you know, uh, and we had like a, met- you know, uh, I think it was called Metro PCS. Is that, is that right? Like it was like a yeah. prepaid phone. We had one of those phones and it would call and either Wes would answer, or I would answer it. And we didn't have any shame in it because we were so far ahead of where we were a few months ago. And we knew, okay, if we go ahead and hire a secretary, now I'm going to have to pay XYZ salary. And that's going to take away from the cost of filing these cases. Remember, we had to file these cases immediately and, and the cost was there. So there was no shame. There wasn't this feeling of, I have to make sure that my legal buddies understand that I've got the rarest marble here and marble there and uh, glass windows. It, it, it never happened. And once again, this is a misconception. Everyone wants to show that so that when your family is looking and saying, oh, my son's the lawyer, my nephew's a lawyer, oh, my good friend's a lawyer, that pressure is on this person who's an attorney to say, I dress like this, I eat like this, I drive this car, I live this life. And you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You absolutely don't have to do that. What you have to do is you have to be the best lawyer possible. So later when your clients say, my lawyer is the best, that trumps clothing, uh, where your offices are and everything else. And it allows you to take money and place in the right right pockets. Um, as we were going through, we understood our weaknesses. And that's the other thing. A lot of people don't realize you have a weakness and it's okay to have that. Ours was our age. It was difficult for us to go and speak with, we, we dealt with this guy named Ken Feinberg, who is probably the biggest uh, mediator in the world. The United States Congress brings him in before major corporations go under. During 9-11, they brought him in to stop the American Airlines from going under or protect DuPont during Vietnam. Or like He's the guy. And they brought him in during VP to make sure that the entire oil industry doesn't collapse. Now, this guy is... Um, he reminds me of, remember the movie Ghost from back in the days? Yes. With Patrick Swayze? Yeah. Okay, there was like this old guy on the train all the time, kind of this like crappy guy. And he looks like him. And um, he's, uh, he's the guy that you walk through the door and he'll scream at you, shout, he may throw things, okay? And um, imagine we've gone, we went through a process where we had settled about 100 cases. Um, and we now felt like, okay, we've made a significant amount of money. We're going to go in there. We had a few hundred more cases. And we felt that we were going to go in there and tell this guy who we are and what we do and yeah, pound your chest. And it was a very humbling moment, which we needed because um, we realized you're still two kids. You're still two kids. You've done well with this, but you're two kids and these guys are about to demolish you. And so the money that we had set aside, we went and we hired some of the best class action attorneys out there. People who we had to pay top dollar for. These weren't people that you negotiate down. You pay top dollar. So they are now in the room and it allows for this, the nonsense to be taken out so you can get right down to the subject, right? So these were things that we made our investments in. We, we never in the beginning, like I said, for the first five years, there was never a situation of, oh, look at those guys. They have the, the best, but people knew us for our cases that we'd taken on. We took on significant class actions. Um, and, and, and I'll give you one class action. Uh, with as much information as I can, um, there was 
there's an electronics manufacturer. It's one of the largest electronics manufacturers in the world um, with two letters as their name. Um, and I remember I took this company on and it was myself, one attorney for my firm and a paralegal. And they had two of the largest law firms in the world that were going against us. And I remember every time I was in a conference room, there were a minimum of 20 to 30 attorneys lined up on the other side. They had their attorneys from their country that flew in. They had their representatives from their country that flew in. And every time they do that, inside, I was absolutely freaking out, absolutely freaking out, panicking, like, okay, am I in way of my head? Because they brought every senior partner in the firm there because they're billing. They're billing an insane amount for these corporations. And um, I remember thinking to myself, okay, if you have that many people where you're taking this very seriously, and their job was to diminish my value as far as the young attorney who hasn't earned his stripes. That's always like this thing, right? You haven't earned your stripes. And eventually we really, really, really um, put them in a bad place by outlawing them. And when we did so, they settled with our clients. They took care of them and made sure that I could never mention their company again. But it was it was uh, a victory and we celebrated it and we enjoyed it. And we did so without me saying, okay, let me bring on 20 attorneys and we're going to show them that we can pay the same amount. We can bring the same amount of people. And the only people that would have suffered would have been our firm and uh, our clients at the cost of my ego of saying, we'll show them. You, know, you don't have to show them. Just outlawyer them, you know? And um, And this has happened many times. There are many stories very similar to this, um, where we used our capital in the right places. And uh, we still, to this day, firmly believe that we will we will provide you with the best lawyers you can imagine, but don't expect to come to the 70th floor and uh, oversee all of this stuff. That's, that's not where we're at. Yeah. Do you have some sort of guidance that you offer your associates, especially those who are starting out in terms of how you were saying, evaluating your kind of like your ego or your fears. Right. Yes, definitely. Um, whenever we, well, in order to come work at the firm, uh, we go through a lot of things. It's not, you just, it's not just being a great attorney. You've got to fill, fit in with the culture of the firm. Uh, the culture of the firm is very much based on not just great luring, but being a good person. Sometimes our clients don't just need uh, a great attorney, they need someone that cares about them, that's going to listen to them. In addition to that, we are heavily, heavily based on this philanthropic model of uh, ours. Is, uh, it's, we use a hashtag called FPJL Cares. So Vero Patel, Jermaine Lopez Cares. And every day, every employee is required to send me a message. And that could be, oh, I provided Chantel with a coffee today. I went ahead and gave a red pen to Jismani today. Whatever it is, I like for them to feel that there's one thing that you can do to help someone else out. And so by doing so, it brings them back. It humbles them. It gives them this feeling of you're working on a major case. Yes, you're getting paid a great salary. Yes, but you're not better than anyone else. You need to be an equal. You need to treat people with respect. And that's something that I think a lot of our clients and our colleagues will say is uh, when working with us, you get that feeling that well-rounded feeling it's not just let's bill let's bill let's bill at, at this stuff sometimes there will receive billables and i'll just negate all of them and say look this person really needs some help we will bill them later on let's go and do this don't wait for them to ask you this 
And so it goes back to what we said in the beginning, that pride factor, right? As much as we tell ourselves, okay, it's the pride that when you needed help, you didn't ask. Well, sometimes our clients are like, that, you know, and there are great clients that sometimes get into a bind. You know, um, we've had clients that are corporate clients of ours who we found out that a child of theirs um, had a situation. And it's one of those things that we'll get in their work and the client expects to pay. And we, we let them know that this was bigger than that relationship. And when you do that, it's instead of a quick buck, you've built a relationship beyond the attorney-client relationship, right? And that's how you keep building what we look at as a legacy with the firm. I definitely think that is so important because you bring in the human factor. And oftentimes people forget that you're dealing with other humans who have emotions, feelings, things that are going on in the background that you have no idea. So I think that's beautiful that you tie that in that way. Yeah, we really try. Thank you for watching. I'd love to hear your insights and takeaways from the first part of my conversation with Ricky. Also, please like this video and follow me or subscribe to my channel so you can see the second part of this episode as it is released to you. And see you guys on the next episode.